How many of you guys like going on a tour? Is that your thing? Like, yeah, I heard depends right up front, right? And, and I see the same thing in the hand movement. Some people are like, oh, I love tours. And other people are like, I mean, the right kind of tour, right? Some tours are worth going on, and some tours are miserable, right? And so we, we have this depends kind of attitude about a tour. Um, I went on a tour. I, I was lucky enough this last year or, or a year and a half ago um, to go with my wife on like a once-in-a-lifetime trip down to Mexico. And while we were down there, we got to take a tour. We got to, to leave our, our resort for a day and be um, invited into what that part of the country um, had to offer. And it was cool because we made some cool stops. One stop was this like private beach where we got to snorkel. And for the first time, I really got to snorkel and not feel like I was drowning in the salt water because I was doing it right. That was right. That was cool. Um, and then we got to stop at this really amazing um, ruins from an ancient civilization that they had uncovered in the jungle. It was amazing. But my favorite part of the tour was when we stopped at a cenote. Do you guys know what a cenote is? Okay. Um, if you're on Instagram or if you ever look at those like, pictures or calendars of like, all the amazing, beautiful places in the world, you will inevitably come across one that looks like a jungle waterfall or swimming hole that's in the ground that's in a cave. That's a cenote. And this part of Mexico that I went to was full of them. And so I had always wanted to, ever, ever since I first saw one, and then um, I see them all the time because I'm on Instagram. Um, and so I'm looking all the time at these things, and they're amazing. And I wanted to go to one so bad, and so we got to go. And um, what made this tour amazing for me was not that they just took us to a cenote where we could see it, where we could look at it, because quite frankly, there are some amazing pictures online, right? I could see it with my computer. The cool thing was that they actually invited us to go down in, and we had a tour of this cave system that was underground, and we had to swim this cave system with this tour guide. And it was amazing, because as we're going, there are like freshwater fish in there. Um, it's this beautiful, clear water, and we would turn off our headlights at one point, and it was pitch black. And then we'd turn them back on, and you'd see all the beauty and the, and the splendor. And the guide was able to tell us, hey, don't take a left here. We'll never find you right? Stick with me. We need to go right, right? And eventually we made our way back out, and it was amazing. What made it amazing for me was that I got to experience it, not just that I got to see it. I could see it on my own. My goal today is to give you guys a tour. I want to give you a tour of the tabernacle in the book of Exodus. The reason I want to give you a tour um, is Quite frankly, you guys could read it. I could give you the passage. You could read the material. And just like me at home, I could look at a picture of a cenote. There is a difference between just simply reading it and a tour. And my goal for you today, by the time that we are done, is that you will feel like you have experienced the tabernacle. And so to get us started, we're going to read in Exodus. And we're going to be in chapter 25. If you have your Bibles, you can Turn there, um, and, you, and if you were here the last couple weeks, you're going to go, wait, 25, I know, I know we're working through the book of Exodus, and last week we were in chapter 33. The reason was that in order to carry out a story arc about Moses going up on the mountain and then coming down to the golden calf incident, we had to put a couple different passages together to carry that story together. But what happened is we skipped some stuff. We skipped a big chunk of what God told Moses on the mountain. And it was about the tabernacle. And so we're going to read just a part of that in Exodus 25, and we're going to start in 
verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. These are the offerings you are to receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and fine linen, goat hair, ram skins dyed red, and another type of durable leather, or your Bible might say dolphin skins. I don't think they actually know what it is. Acacia wood olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and the breastplate. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. And so what what God is saying to Moses here is, um, in the midst of all these religious instructions, he says, I need you to take up an offering and gather the materials because I want you to build me a place to be with you. Right? He's saying, I'm going to actually come into your midst. See, up until this point, they had to go to Mount Sinai to be with God, and he's going to send them away from the mountain, but he wants to be with his people. Let's keep going. Verse 10. Have them make an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a half high. Overlay it with pure gold, both inside and out, and make a gold molding around it. Cast four gold rings for it and fasten them to its four feet with two rings on one side and two rings on the other. Then make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Insert the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry it. The poles are to remain in the rings of the ark. They are not to be removed. And you guys, there's an interesting story. Later on in the story of the ark, we see that as it's being carried through the countryside, one of the guys that's carrying it stumbles. And you know what? That actually kind of makes sense, right? You've got this giant wooden box covered in gold. I'm sure it's really heavy. And then you're going to see here in a minute that God puts rocks in it, right? So it gets even heavier. And so this guy stumbles. He's carrying it, and he stumbles. And another guy that's standing there worried about the ark sticks his hand out to steady it, and he dies for it. That's how precious this ark is. And we're going to see why here in a few minutes. But these poles have to remain in the ark because you just can't touch it. Then put in the ark the tablets of the covenant law, which I will give you. The Ten Commandments. Like God chisels out the rock, the Ten Commandments in this box. Make an atonement cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide. Your Bible might say mercy seat. If you're reading a King James or another translation, it might say a mercy seat instead of atonement cover. And make two cherubim, or angels, out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. Make one cherub at one end and the second cherub at the other. Make the cherubim of one piece with the cover at the two ends. And the cherubim are to have their wings spread upward, overshadowing the cover with them. The cherubim are to face each other, looking toward the cover. Place the cover on top of the ark and put in the ark the tablets of the covenant law that I will give you. This is super important, you guys. There above the cover between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the covenant law, I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites. 
And so up until this point, for the nation of Israel or Moses to interact with God, it had to happen up on Mount Sinai. That's where God was, and Moses had to go to him, and God is saying, I want to start coming to where you are, but we need a place to meet. So build me this ark and make it exactly like this, and my presence will meet you there. Now, this kind of detail, these specifics surrounding this tabernacle, this home for God, go on for 12 chapters. We're not going to read all 12 chapters here today. Um, that would, you guys would all be asleep. I'd be asleep, okay? And so, but what I want you to know is that these kind of details take up a third of the book of Exodus. And it's interesting because you think of the, the story of Exodus and you've got some highlights, right? Like, you would think the parting of the Red Sea is kind of like this huge moment. He literally took a body of water and, like, spread it out. One paragraph. Right? You, you get the giving of the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, and you've got maybe a chapter or a, or a page. And we get to this tabernacle, and there are 12 chapters of detail. And there are details that are so specific, like, I, I want you to have this curtain made of this fabric, and I want that guy to do it. I want, I want you to make poles for all of the curtains, and the poles have to have a base, and these poles have a bronze base, and these poles have a silver base. So specific. So particular. And what I want to do today is I want to give you a tour of that so that we don't get caught in the details necessarily. And so the first thing I want to do is I want to show you guys some pictures. I found this cool app on my phone, and I really wanted to like play with it and have it just show up on the screen, and I'm not that smart. And so I just took screenshots of it, and I want to show you what it would be like to see this tabernacle. And so the very first thing that we're going to look at is the actual shape of the tabernacle itself. What we find in this, uh, all these details for all of these chapters is one of the descriptions is the shape of the tabernacle. And you've got this tent kind of in the, in the back, in the middle of this courtyard. And the tent is where God will be. And yet there are all of these layers of separation. And on the outside of it, you have this curtain or this fence. And this fence is like two and a half meters tall, tall enough that you couldn't see over it. There was a distinct separation between what happened on the outside of the tabernacle and what happened on the inside. And at the front, or at the gate, there were these beautiful curtains that would open, kind of, kind of like a, a gate, a way in, and yet they closed to remind you of the separation. It wasn't always open. You had to be qualified to go through the curtain, and that curtain always, always faced to the east. Now, if you made it through the curtain, what you would see first is an altar made of bronze that looks something like this. It was four and a half feet tall and seven and a half feet square, and it had a fire burning in it all the time. And it was covered with bronze. Remember, they said, uh, take up an offering, and in this thing, you got to have gold and silver and bronze and all this stuff. And they used the bronze to cover this altar and this is where sacrifices were made. Near this brazen altar would have been tables and priests standing there with knives prepared for sacrificial slaughter. Things like uh, lambs, 
precious and pure and perfect. And doves, sometimes there might be a grain offering or a drink offering. And there were lots of things that are going to be described throughout Leviticus and some of the Old Testament um, ritual passages that teach us what happened here. But what you need to know is this is where the sacrifice happened. The very first thing that you get to in the tabernacle is where the blood is shed. And then after that, you'd get to go, if you got to go forward anymore, you would find this um, wash basin or a, or a laver, laver, I don't know how to say it, so I want to say wash basin. <laughs> also bronze. And this would have been the very next step. And so what would happen here is that the priests who were doing all of this sacrificing, a necessary step in temple or, or tabernacle worship, were now covered in blood. And in order to go any further in this experience, they would have to stop and wash. And so they would wash their hands, and they would wash their feet. And this, again, it was made of bronze. In fact, this was partly made up of women's mirrors, polished, perfect, reflective mirrors that were on the bottom underneath the water. And so that as the priests are washing their hands, they are literally looking at their own reflection and seeing the blood-stained water between them and that reflection. Now, at that point, the priests are prepared to move into the actual tabernacle, to move into what we call the holy place. And in order to do that, they would have to go through a curtain. And this curtain was really tall, and it was beautiful, and it was heavy. You can imagine, as you push this curtain out of the way, the weight would remind you of the significant separation between the outside of the curtain and the inside. It took intention to go through this curtain. And once you're inside the holy place, you would see a room that looks something like this. Gold everywhere. And now you remember out in the courtyard, the altar was bronze. The wash basin was bronze. The, the poles that hold up this holy place are all set in bases of silver. And then you get inside this holy place and everything is gold. Progressively more valuable the further in you go. And what you'd see in this holy place is a couple of very important elements. The first is this lampstand that you see on the left. You might have heard it called a menorah. They're still part of Jewish religious practice to this day. Seven flames on seven independent branches, solid gold, made to look like an almond tree with, with almond buds and flowers. Beautiful. And at dusk, they would come in, a priest would come in every night, make sure the oil was topped off, and light it. And then at dawn, when the light of day could take over, they would come in and they would snuff it out. Every day, twice a day, forever, so that there was always light shining in the holy place. And you can imagine that flame, that flicker in a room of gold, and what that would have looked like. And on the opposite side of the room, you have this table. And this table, um, in your Bible, it might be described as the table with the bread of the presence on it, or showbread. And that basically, there was an uh, unleavened bread that was available to the priests on this table that represented intimate communion with God. That when the priests got this far, they were invited 
into that kind of intimacy that you only get at a dinner table, where you get to sit and actually enjoy somebody's presence and eat together. And once a week, this bread would be changed out and they would, they would replace it so that it was always available for the priests. And then at the back of the room, you see these beautiful curtains, a lot like the curtains that you just went through, but they're different because they've got these cherubs on them, these angels. Beautiful, but terrifying. Because angels, if you remember, guarded the way into the Garden of Eden. And God set those angels there to keep people out. And so you've got this veil, this curtain with these big, beautiful angels there, essentially saying what is beyond this curtain is incredibly important. Make sure that you're ready, and they're guarding it. Before you get to that curtain, though, you stop at this other altar. And all it does ever is burn incense. You're not allowed to offer a sacrifice there. You're not allowed to, to bring grain or a drink offering or, or any blood. The entire purpose is for this fragrant aroma to burn before God's presence to make sure that as you went through, you were acceptable. And all through Scripture, we see this tie between incense and the prayers of God's people, that our prayers go up to God like incense, accepted because of the process we went through to get to this point. Now, imagine you get to go through into the Holy of Holies, the very next room. You're already in this holy place that's all gold, it's all beautiful, and you get to go through, and the next thing you would see is the Ark of the Covenant. Now, how many of you guys went home and did your homework last week? Tim told you to watch Indiana Jones. Did you guys watch? Yeah, I got, yeah, a couple of people actually did it. I remember, um, now, I, I grew up in a Christian home. I'm sure that we watched the Ten Commandments. I'm sure we read the Bible. My first experience or, or idea of the ark was Indiana Jones, right? And the idea that, like, when they finally crack it open, they're expecting this beautiful treasure, and in it they find the wrath of God, and they, like, melt like wax. It's not that far off, actually, from the importance that happens at this box, of wood covered in gold. What we see is this, this gold box that's probably almost as big as, as a dinner table with cherubs on top of it, these angels. Again, everybody who went in here would have had very little recollection or thought of angels like we do with the whole of Scripture. Their understanding of angels was the angel that stood to guard Eden. Standing over this this box that inside has the very words of God, the Ten Commandments. And realize that at this point, whenever we're reading this, God had every intention or had already physically with his own finger written the Ten Commandments, the, the handwriting of God on these rocks that are in here. And it's beautiful, and above it is where God's presence would meet Moses. All right. Tour's over. That would be the worst tour ever, right? <laughs> Didn't I say at the beginning that if, if, if you could just go on a tour and basically see it like you could see it on your own, that it's not a very good tour, right? And so theoretically, you guys could read these 12 chapters and get these pictures online and have the exact same experience that you just had. A self-guided tour uh, it can be boring, and it kind of reminds me of a self-guided tour sometimes when we go through Scripture chunk by chunk and, and we just kind of, we get it, but we don't get it, if that makes sense. 
Now, there's a difference between that kind of a tour and the, t- the kind where you get to experience something. And I remember um, getting a tour of the um, Mesa State at the time, art department, because my dad was an art student in the art department. And I remember being probably middle school age or, or you know, 10, 11, 12, and getting to go into this art department. And I didn't get the tour that like a, a future student might get with like, here's the paintbrushes, over there's where we do sculpture. I got a tour that was like, it was late in the evening after classes had ended and, and the artists were all like hanging out, finishing and doing their projects. And so I got to like play with the clay. I got to go and smell the smell of burning wax as they formed the shapes that would become bronze sculptures. I remember being there one time when they actually poured the bronze, liquid molten bronze into the casts, and the smells and the heat, that was a tour. And that's kind of what I want to do today. And so I'm going to ask you guys to trust me for a minute. Everybody close your eyes. And what I want to do is for the next few minutes, I want to imagine what it would be like to experience this tabernacle. And so, imagine approaching it from camp. And what you see from camp is simply a curtain. It's, it's a wall. You can't tell what's on the other side. And you walk up to the, the gate, and you have with you your lamb on a leash. This lamb that you've been caring for. You've even had it in your home. You've been feeding it. You want to make sure that it has no blemishes, that it never gets hurt, and so it's so well taken care of that it's become like a pet for you. And as you approach this curtain, you know what's about to happen on the other side. And so as you get there with your sacrifice, somebody looks you up and down, and they agree that you're ready, and they open the curtain for you, and you step in. And as you step into the courtyard, the air feels different. There's a busyness, but it's not the busyness at home. It's not the busyness in camp. It's a solemn, purposeful busyness. And as you're walking forward, you you realize that the very first thing you're going to have to do is stop at this altar, this huge fire, this brazen altar covered in, in bronze. And you make your way forward, and you look down at your little sheep, and you can hear the, the, the bleeding sounds of, of sheep in the background, and you hear doves flapping. And as you approach the priest, he takes the leash from you, and he turns that sheep around so that you can put your hand on its forehead as if to transfer your sin to the sin of this animal. And then the priest takes his knife. And you have to look away in this moment. You can't can't watch as a sacrifice is made. And when it's done, the priest looks at you and he says, it's done. You're good. Now, under normal circumstances, that might be all you get to experience. But this day, you're allowed to go further. And so you make your way toward this wash basin. And on your way, your foot slips, and your sandal gets full of mud. But it hasn't rained in weeks. That mud was the blood of your lamb. And so you're happy to get to this, this 
wash basin. When you, when you get there, you have a chance to, to clean your hands and your feet. Maybe you have a chance to clean that sandal. You're kind of happy to be rid of the blood. And yet while you're standing there washing your hands, you look into the water and you see yourself. You're different. It's not how you're used to seeing yourself. You see yourself now with this stained water between you and your own reflection, but you are getting cleaned of the blood at the same time. And then after you're clean, you're invited to go even further. And so you approach the curtain at the holy place and you reach out with your right hand to move the curtain. And it's, you think it's going to be like the curtain at home that separates your side of, of the bedroom from your kid's side. And when you go to move it, it doesn't move. It's that heavy. It's, it's so heavy and it's so ominous. It's in your way. And so you push again, and this time with all of your weight, you push into the holy place and past this door that separates you. And when you're in there, you are struck by the beauty of this room. And you look, and to your left there is this, this candle, but it's not a candle. There's seven flames on it, and it's this beautiful tree. It's life. It's warmth, it's light. And you look across the room and there's this table and you're invited to stop and to grab a piece of the bread. As if to say, would you eat with me? God is inviting you into that. And then you move forward and you get to the, the altar and the sweet fragrance of the incense surrounds you. Can you smell it? smells good. And you realize that in that moment, just as good as that smells to you, and you like being around it, God is accepting you and wants to be around you. And so you're invited through yet another veil. And this veil is just as heavy as the last one. But as you approach it, you realize you're looking at these huge angels that are embroidered on it, bigger than you, terrifying and beautiful at the same time. What could possibly be on the other side of this door. And so as you move that out of the way, you step from this beautiful gold room into yet more beauty, and you're confronted with this box, this ark. You've heard about it. You've never seen it. It's covered in gold. Statues of these angels above it are amazing and beautiful. And you know that inside of that are these tablets that you've heard of where God actually wrote down his law. You know you're not supposed to touch it, so you just stand there. Slowly your gaze shifts upwards, and you didn't know it, but that was the place where God was. And the presence of the same God that you had seen shaking the mountain, the presence of the God who had caused earthquakes and smoke and fire upon the mountain, was now literally right in front of you. And you fall on your face because you had just been through all of these steps that pointed out how 
serious your sin was. The altar and the basin and all of this separation, all of these curtains that told you along the way that you were getting to something more and more holy and you felt more and more unworthy and now you're in the presence of God. You fall on your face because you're expecting him to see all of that sin and to be seated on a seat or a throne of judgment. And actually, you find this God seated on the mercy seat. And he gives you that mercy, that sense of rightness, love, and acceptance when you were expecting judgment. All right, you guys, you can open your eyes. That is what it would be like to experience the tabernacle. It's not about the elements It's about what the elements do for the people as they get closer to God. Now, remember, there's 12 chapters of this, all kinds of details and specifics, right? Why? Why would God go to all of that care to get all of those details right? Right? Like, theoretically, he could just be like, I like your tent. Would you build me one of those? That would work. God could be anywhere. It's his call. Why why have all of these details? I'm going to put something on the screen for you. God cares about how his dwelling place is treated. God cares about how his dwelling place is treated in this book because Exodus is all about meeting or God meeting the needs of his people. And what's interesting is that makes sense when you think back across the story, right? Like they start out as this slave nation and they're like, Please deliver us. We need out of this. And he goes, you do need delivered. And he comes and he delivers them. And then they get out in the wilderness and they're like, we need water. This is a desert. And he goes, you do need that. And he gives them water. We need food. We're hungry. And he gives them manna and quail. He's like, I'm I'm happy to meet that need. And then on Mount Sinai, he says, you know what? You need some rules. You need some laws. You, You can't be a culture without boundaries. You need some formation. And so he gives them some law, and he gives them some religious rituals on how to interact with him. And all it has been is God meeting need after need. And yet, he knew that their greatest need was none of those things. Their greatest need was his presence. See, they weren't just a people that were needing delivered from slavery or that needed fed or needed protected or needed rules. They were a people separated from God. They were in exile, not an exile from a land, but an exile from the Garden of Eden. How many of you guys remember the story in the garden? right? Okay, if you grew up in church, it's kind of familiar, right? God creates this ideal uh, environment for, for people to live in, and you imagine it's always green, and there's a stupid snake, and, and then Adam screws it up, right? And then uh, after Adam screwed it up, nobody's allowed in the garden anymore. That's Genesis 3. Genesis 3 is where um, mankind is essentially kicked out of, put into exile, away from the garden. What I want to do is I want to take you guys back a little further. And so um, I'm not going to read to you out of Genesis 2, but if you want to look, everything we're going to talk about is in Genesis 2. But this environment, this Garden of Eden, is actually way more important than I think we give it credit for. What's cool about this environment 
is that this is where God actually interacted with people in a physical, tangible way. And so there were some key features of Eden that are actually kind of neat, and they're going to be more neat in the next five minutes, okay? First, it was in the east. Interesting. It's literally the first thing on earth, and God goes, it's in the east. (laughs) East of what? Right? Like, how about the middle? Everything's east of that, right? No, he says it's, it's eastward. There are trees, beautiful trees, and they, and they provide life, right? But there are two trees in the garden that are really important. The tree of life. Anybody who ate of the tree of life would have life eternal. As long as they were consuming this tree, they would live forever. There's another tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God said, if you eat of that tree you'll die. You have the option to choose one of these two. And of course, we know that they chose, eventually chose the tree of knowledge. They couldn't have what wasn't, they couldn't handle it. It wasn't available to them. They had to reach out just like most of us do, and we try to get the things we're not allowed to have. And because of that, they were kicked out of the garden, right? But this description of the garden was interesting because it also describes it with gold and onyx. And then when they're kicked out, They're sent out this east gate of the Garden of Eden, and there's a cherub stationed there with a flaming sword that guards the way back in to this garden. And here's the thing. Here's what makes Garden of Eden so special. God dwelled with people. Actual, physical, intimate communion with God. I'm sure they actually like ate together. Can you imagine that? If God's like, dinner's ready. Think about that for a minute, right? I'll bet you Adam and Eve probably sat down in the garden and listened to God as he taught them the things of the world. Audibly, physically. They went on walks together. That's actually, that is clearly biblical. (laughs) They went on walks with God. He gave them purpose. He actually was able to say, I'd like for you to name these animals here. I want you to take care of the garden over here. I want you to enjoy my presence. I want you to enjoy being together. And he was able to give them direction in life like a parent would or like a mentor would in their midst. Imagine what it was like to be in God's presence. To have God praise your hard work in person. Imagine he says to you, Sean, I'm so... I'm glad you did. That's exactly what I wanted you to do. Good job, man. Imagine what it would be like to be in his presence or to wake up from a nap to hear him singing in the distance. This was God's plan, his presence with his people. And whenever we look in the book of Genesis at all of his creation, he says, it was good. He looked at this and he said, this is good. It's good for me to be with my people. He enjoyed it. Think about that for a minute. It wasn't just for Adam and Eve. Like, God enjoyed it. And then Adam broke it. And as our representative, that we broke it. We continue to break it, don't we? When Adam sinned, what happened is there was this separation, and they got kicked out. And see, Eden was a place where God's space and man's space overlapped. Heaven and earth together, and sin separated the two. So now when we think of God in heaven, we think of this other place, right? Because we're stuck here on earth. 
if God's plan was his presence with his people from the very beginning, and now his people are in exile because of sin, what we see in the tabernacle is God beginning to restore Eden. His people can't go home, and so he brings home to them. And so what we see in the tabernacle is that it reaches back to Eden. And you see it, if, if you've studied the two, you see this connection, gold and onyx that are in Genesis 3. And they seem like there's this throwaway verse about how there's gold and onyx in there. And yet when we read about the tabernacle, it's full of gold. And if we were to move on to where it talks about the priests that would serve in the tabernacle, they would wear this beautiful garment that had stones all over it that were precious and the very first one is onyx. If you're standing in the holy place in that beautiful golden room and you're looking at your left at this lampstand made to be a tree of life. It's as if the tree of life is represented in this holy place, that there's a promise of eternal life when you get this close to God and it gives light to the entire room. There's also the tree of knowledge here, the law, and just like the tree of knowledge, the law of God exposes in us that we're not worthy. It shows us where we're wrong. We see in here this bread of the presence where we get to actually interact with and eat with God. And all through this tabernacle, it is God beginning to restore Eden. And that's why there are 12 chapters. That's why there's all the details and the specifics. That's why every little thing matters because it's the biggest possible thing happening. And that's why he cares so much about where, his, where he dwells, right? Remember that point we had up that God cares about how his dwelling place is treated? Because we mistreated Eden. And he says, I'm going to bring home back to my people. But how you treat it matters. I care. I care enough to give you a third of this story in Exodus dedicated to how I want it treated. See, the whole thing calls back to Eden, but it also has this added layer of what sin did. Sin separated us, right? And so you have the holy place and the holy of holies that feel like Eden, and yet out in the courtyard, sin is dealt with. And so it reaches back to Eden, but it also reaches forward to Jesus. And what we see if we were to walk through this as Christians, if we walk through this experience, we would see at the altar blood sacrificed on our behalf, but it wouldn't be the blood of a lamb, it'd be the blood of the lamb. Jesus paying that penalty, paying that way for us to move forward in this. And then if we made it to the, the, the wash basin, as we look in there and, and we're washing off the blood, it's a picture of sanctification. As we get cleaner, we see ourselves more right. We see ourselves the way that God sees us. It's as if that reflection in there is how he sees you. And you get a glimpse of that as you participate in getting clean. And then we work our way through, and he promises us eternal life. He promises us intimate communion with him. In fact, we took communion this morning. He promises us that our prayers will be accepted before God because we are in Christ. 
just like the altar. And that veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies was torn in two when Jesus hung on the cross. The moment the sacrifice was given, there was no longer a separation between the place where God was and the place where we could be. If we made it past the altar, we could be in God's presence. And we find mercy at the mercy seat with Jesus' blood sprinkled the same way the priests would have. Now, not only does it reach forward to Jesus, it also reaches forward to us. See, if God cared so much about how Eden was treated, about how Sinai was treated, about how the, the temple and the tabernacle were treated, I wonder if he cares how we treat where his spirit is now. See, he cares about where his dwelling place is now just as much as he cared about it in the book of Exodus. And so I want to show you guys some things in the New Testament where this picture of the tabernacle and the importance of how it's treated reaches forward all the way to us. And the first one might be familiar to you. It's in 1 Corinthians six nineteen. I have the wrong address up there. It is 6, 19. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit whom is in you, whom you have received from God. Are, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. God cares about his dwelling place. That means he cares about how you take care of yourself. And obviously, the context here is physically. And if I, you know, if I went into full youth pastor mode, we could do a whole message on like how you take care of your bodies physically. You guys are adults. Take care of yourself. But I don't think it just stops at the physical part here either. Spiritually, it matters how you are caring for the temple of God in you. Are you going in often? Do you take advantage of the fact that God is in there? Are you struck by the cost of the sacrifice that made that possible? Are you taking advantage of that access? Or are you just ignoring the fact that God has chosen to take up residence in you? It took 12 chapters to explain it in Exodus and we don't even pay attention to the fact that he's in here. Is your temple unkept, unused, falling apart? When was the last time that you went in there and did any housekeeping? Imagine if you had, if you had lived in that camp and you had the tent next door. Imagine you were the one closest to the entrance to the tabernacle and you never went in. Now imagine that the same God that dwelt in that temple said, I want to come dwell in you. And you never go in. All right, let's keep going. That's one. Here's another one. In 1 Corinthians 3, 16, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person for God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. Together. Not just you now. Us. Or look at this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 21. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you two are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his Spirit. So yes, it's true that you and your body are the temple of the Holy Spirit, but it is also true that the church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. 
And if God cares about where he dwells so much that it matters how you treat it, how you treat the church matters. Oh, I could just kind of take it or leave it. I go when I'm, I don't have anything better to do, right? I, 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 I go a couple times a month, but I really, I don't like it when they ask me to do anything, to serve in any way. I really just like to go, I like the worship personally. I don't even really like the people that much, and so I kind of like to show up late and leave early. It's just, it's me and God, right? Or we take these really long breaks and we justify it because we're like, oh, well, I mean, God's out in nature too. Yeah, God's everywhere. He shows himself in nature, but he dwells among the church. This is where he is. This is where he chooses to be. And how we treat the church matters. In fact, check this out in Hebrews 10. I'm going to read you just, it's actually a few verses. It's worth it. Verse 19, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, familiar, I hope, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened up for us through the curtain, familiar, that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and a full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. In the context of our access to God because of Jesus that gives us access into the throne room of God that the tabernacle represented. In the very same context, it says, don't forsake the gathering together of his people. If the church is God's temple, it is not okay to not come to church. Period. No qualifiers. Now, if you're at home, I am not picking on you. You are participating in church because we live in an amazing age, right? But I don't want you to only ever participate at home. And if you can't come because you're sick or you have some medical reason, there's grace for that, right? We have reasons. Sometimes you're out of town. You just can't help it. But when you choose not to come to church, you are choosing to ignore the place where God is. That's not okay. In this season, we've actually proven to ourselves how easy it is to dismiss the physical, actual gathering of people, right? This coronavirus thing has messed us all up, and for a long time, it, was, it, was, it had to be at home, and it had to be uh, distant, and I think what has happened in our culture, it has happened to our church, it has happened to the next church, is that people got so used to not being here that now that they're allowed, they come when they can, stay home when they want to. There's a football game on. It's of utmost importance. How you treat the church matters because it's just like the tabernacle in that God says, this is, this is my new temple. Is it a priority to you? Is it special? Is this where you expect to meet God? Is it holy? Is it worth the effort? Is it worth the upkeep? Is it worth saying no to other things? Well, God's here. 
And he says, the places where I am, I want you to treat those things with utmost care. I don't want you to treat them flippantly. Okay, that's two. You yourself, the church, how you treat each other matters too. If I have the Holy Spirit in me as a believer and you have the Holy Spirit in you, then God has chosen to dwell in you. How I treat you matters. So I want to take you guys on one more tour to kind of end this all. And so um, one more time, I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. But this time, our tour is of the temple or the tabernacle that God has created in the person next to you. So as you approach the gate, you look around to the setting at which this tabernacle is set. And you realize it looks nothing like what you're used to. This isn't the setting where your tabernacle is set. There are hardships and disappointments littering the ground that you didn't even know about. I didn't know that was a problem. I didn't know that was in their life. And as you go through the gate and you make your way to the altar, that part is all too familiar. The first thing that you see is Jesus' blood. But there's a different knife. It was a different sin. Not yours. It happened differently, but it was the same sacrifice. At the wash basin, as you approach, you see a reflection. But remember, this isn't your tabernacle. You see a reflection of this other person as God sees them. And it's hazy. There's blood in the water. It's a mess. But you get a glimpse of what God sees. And then you're invited to step into the holy place. And when you get in there, you're kind of struck because the oil in the lamp hasn't been tended to in a while, and there's only a couple of flames flickering. And the bread's gone. Nobody's replaced the bread in a while. Nobody has been eating here. And you get over to the altar of incense, and it is covered in a pile of ashes. How many prayers is this person praying? And through the rip in the curtain, you step in, to the holy of holies in this other person's temple. And as you look up from the ark, you're actually kind of surprised. God, you're, you're here? I didn't know you'd be in here. And he goes, of course I'm in here. This is my temple. This is where I belong. And as you walk out, you have the option to top off the oil, to relight the candles. You have an option to, to clean and prepare this table with fresh bread, a fresh opportunity to be intimate with God. You have an opportunity to, to clean the altar, to replace the incense, to make it possible for them to feel comfortable praying there again. Or you have the option to walk out and to forget what you saw because you've got your own temple to take care of. All right, tour's over. You can open your eyes. Are you taking care of God's temple in the people around you? See, today I'm actually 
I'm focused on everybody else. It's worth talking about you are the temple. And I want you to care about the church as the temple. But we have a saying around here. We say, my circle, can you repeat it? My circle, my responsibility. What we mean by that most often is it's my responsibility to go into my circle for Jesus, to go out, to evangelize, to bring people with me on this journey in knowing the God that I know. It's also true that your circle is full of people who already know him and how you treat the temple in that person matters. My circle, my responsibility means that it's my job to make sure that you have an option to to go before God. Are you struggling with something? What if I walked in with you? What if I made sure that the lamp was lit so that when you go in there, you're reminded of this promise of eternal life? What if I went in with you and lit the altar of incense and prayed with you? What if I walked hand in hand with you into the presence of God? What could I do to make sure that your temple is operating the way that it should? Because you should be accessing the God that's in you. That should be our heart. And I'm afraid too often we have not taken that seriously. It's a very personal thing. And we usually just say, that looks rough. And we go back to our temple. If God cares about his dwelling place and how it's treated, then this last slide is how I'd like to wrap it all up. How you treat yourself, how you treat the church, and how you treat other believers is a measurement of your respect for God's presence. And notice, I I didn't leave in here a room for you to do anything. I want you to wrestle with this. I'm not asking you how you feel about things. How you treat yourself is measurable. How you treat the church, how you treat other people, other believers, is a measurement of your respect for God's presence. What I'd like for you guys to do over the next, maybe this afternoon, over this next couple days or week, take a measurement. Take an honest measurement. Maybe ask other people in your life, how do you think I, when I talk about the church, what do I say? Do you think I'm taking care of myself in a spiritual sense really well? And ask yourself, how am I treating other believers' access to God? What's cool is that at the end of the Bible, you guys, in Revelation 21, Eden is restored. We get to the very end of the Bible, and the promise of God's presence with his people in paradise is realized in a new heaven and a new earth, and there is no temple. There is no tabernacle because there's no symbolism. It's just true. And yet, at all of these points in Scripture, we see God working to restore Eden along the way. We see it at Sinai. We see it in the tabernacle. We see it in the temple. We see it in Jesus. And I see it in you. God ultimately wants to restore Eden in you. He wants that kind of access. And you can't go home, so he brings home to you. God's presence with God's people is God's plan, and it always has been. Let me pray over you real quick, and then we can go. Heavenly Father, we are thankful that you want to be with us, and we are sorry that we do not take that seriously. I don't think we take it seriously in ourselves. I don't think we take it seriously at church or how we think about church, and I surely don't think I take it seriously that you have set up your residence in people around me. We're sorry about that. 
Help us to take those things more seriously because you and your presence matters. How we treat those places matters. Inspire us, change us to do a better job. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.